You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is April 26th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We are so, so, so jam-packed tonight. We're going to waste no time. We've got the Bulls documentary coming on in uh, right at an hour from now. If you're watching the live show, please hit the thumbs up button. Get us over 50 and get us trending in the YouTube live section. I've got news about the podcast that I have promised was coming at the end of the show. So... Stay tuned for that. And I've also got several things to touch on tonight. A great, great piece by our own Bud Elliott. I'm actually going to lead the show uh, kind of catapulting off, for lack of a better term, of a piece that he put out about the G5. And I want to kind of juxtapose it to the arguments made about including the G5 in the college football playoff. Recruiting against the SEC, negative recruiting against the SEC, especially in lieu of the draft results that we just saw. That's something Kirby Smart's been talking about. I'm going to talk about it too. Jake Fromm, this perception amongst some that Jake Fromm fell See these quotations. If you're if you're listening to the podcast, I'm very sarcastically doing the air quotes. Fell in the draft. Jake Fromm didn't fall anywhere. He went right where he was supposed to go. What does that mean, though, about the Georgia offense? I don't care about so much the draft where Jake Fromm went. Is he going to disappear in Buffalo? Will he be a career backup? I'm not talking about Jake Fromm so much tonight. I'm going to talk about what that means in retrospect as it relates to a lot of what was said about the Georgia offense this past year and moving forward. And I'm also going to give you a little sneak peek about Oh, what about two minutes, Colin, worth of a conversation that we had with Notre Dame's Brian Kelly. We're going to debut that Tuesday, but I'm going to play a little sneak preview of it for you tonight. I had him go pretty in-depth on their recruiting blueprint. Pretty fascinating stuff. I think you'll like it. All that, and if we have time, about two or three Q&As. So let's get to it. Some very revealing numbers, I think we can all agree, from this past weekend's NFL draft as it relates to the continued dominance of the SEC and Power 5 versus G5 and all that. And I'm not going to waste time making this a Southeastern Conference infomercial. You guys all know those stats already. But what I wanted to do, and I tweeted this out a couple of times over the weekend, including about an hour or two before we went on air tonight, is I wanted to talk about a really good article that our own Bud Elliott put out. Now, as I was watching the draft, uh, we have our own Slack channels for 24-7 Sports, and Bud drops in there, and he says, wait till you guys see this stat that I just uncovered, and he's doing a lot of work. They're trying to pump out a lot of articles and whatnot, uh, trying to capitalize on draft traffic, which they did a very good job of. And so he includes me in the raw Word document or, or pages document, whatever file he's using. So I got to see it before he published it, and I said, man, I got to lead the show with this. I think I tweeted it out Friday. I mean, I'm leading late kick with this. And so what I want to do is I want to briefly reset my position so that we're all clear on where I stand here. I do not believe in college football playoff expansion for and no more. If there is expansion, which even I have to admit to you seems inevitable, I don't have to be for it, but it seems inevitable, if there is expansion, I am not for auto bids. I'm not for guaranteeing a Power 5 conference champion a seat at the table, so I'm certainly not in favor of guaranteeing any G5 champion or otherwise a seat at the table. I'll go a step further. I don't believe in spots for the G5 period at the college football playoff table. Now, I'm going to make the argument for that in just a second because it sounds really exclusionary and unfair and 
In some ways, maybe it is. I just don't think it's my problem. Uh, I think the G5 should have its own separate playoff. That is my stance, okay? Now, the rebuttals, anytime that I've gone down this road, the rebuttals are always, well, if the G5 had its own playoff, and I'm just accumulating the ones I saw this weekend given to me on Twitter. If the G5 had its own playoff, it wouldn't be able to remain financially viable. Again, probably true. I don't know that that's true, actually, but, but let's say it's true. Whose problem is that? Is it someone else's job to subsidize you? I don't necessarily know that I agree with that. Uh, the second rebuttal, how would they get by without the cash infusion that they get from playing in the New Year's Six games? I never said exclude them from the New Year's Six games. I just said exclude them from the college football playoff conversation. Uh, the G5 deserves to be in. They've proven. Now, this is the one, this is always the go-to. This is the one that I just want to rip to shreds. The G5 deserves to be in. And what is the argument commonly? It's because they've proven they can play with Power 5 teams on the field any given day. And guess what? You're dead on the money right. And guess what? It doesn't matter. Number one, no, you have not ever proven as a G5 team that you can play with a Power 5 team in a playoff setting. But number two, even if you did, guys, that's never been the argument. And this is where I want to bring up Bud Elliott's piece. That's never been the argument, at least from people that I'm in a camp with. It's never been the argument that if Central Florida were to get in a semifinal matchup against um, Alabama, they wouldn't even be competitive. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't, but that's never been my argument. I don't care about what you can do in one game. I care about the journey it takes to get there. I care about the challenge that you have to go up against to get there. So I want to bring in Bud Elliott's piece here. And what he did was essentially he was just accumulating, I'm going to start with a rolling four-year average, and this is really looking at first-round talent taken in the draft, okay? There's no surprise here. I don't think there's any shocking stat. A rolling four-year average, uh, writes Bud, can help show the declining contribution of the G5 schools in the first round of the NFL draft. And sure enough, precipitously, the amount of G5 players being taken in the first round declines every year. It was 87% of first rounders being from Power 5 schools 2011 to 2014. 2017 to 2020, the latest four-year period, 92% of players taken in the first round are from Power 5 schools. SEC, ACC, Big 10, Big 12, Pac-12. Now that's obvious, okay? No one was going to argue, hey, most of the talent in the first round is in the Power 5. But then I want to continue. And I want you to listen to this part specifically. The talent flight to the Power Five via conference expansion. Here's why I want you to listen to this. Because another one of the rebuttals that I get a lot of times is, well, we're never going to be allowed into this club. It's very exclusionary. They won't let us in. And that's an interesting rebuttal. Because I ask, how'd TCU get in? Where'd West Virginia come from? How's Rutgers at this table? Syracuse? Pittsburgh? Louisville? How'd they get in here? Pause, and let's continue. Bud writes, the numbers in the first round do roughly match up with some of the best G5 teams joining Power 5 leagues through conference expansion, and they are not being replaced by similar quality teams in the G5 ranks. 
Now, the teams he's talking about here, Utah going to the Pac-12, TCU and West Virginia joining the Big 12, Pitt and Syracuse in the ACC, Rutgers to a lesser degree in the Big 10, and Louisville in 2014. They started in the ACC. So there's a perception, first off, before I get to my main point, that I want to knock down here like a pinata. The perception is, okay, maybe there's a gap, but those G5 teams any given year, they're closing the gap. No, they're not. They're not at all. There may be a blip on the radar screen like a Boise State or a UCF, and they are the exception to the rule. But when it comes to the top of the Power Five, gap's not closing at all, guys. The gap is very much widening here. Now I get to more of the money quotes. I'm not done talking about that gap yet, but I want to get to the money quotes because that gap's far wider than it looks. I want you to consider what I'm about to read and tell me what this has to do with who should make the playoff. So I'm going to tie the two together. Conference expansion among Power 5 teams has made the group of five weaker than ever before from a talent perspective. And then Bud continues, and this was the hammer. Since the final Power 5 expansion, which was a few years ago, let's start with the 2015 draft, every single Power 5 conference has had more picks in the first round than the rest of the group of five combined. At this point, we're not talking about the SEC. The SEC has had 61 first-round picks since the 2015 draft. The ACC is second with 33. But let's not even talk about that. The Big 12 has been by far the lowest-performing Power 5 conference when it comes to sending kids in the first round. The Big 12 has only sent 15 kids in the first round since 2015. It's not a good number, is it? Well, pause, and let me read you this. American Athletic Conference, six. Mountain West, four. Conference USA, two. The entire MAC has sent one. Add them all up, and it still doesn't equal the amount of teams that the worst Power Five conference has sent. And so what does all this mean? Let's go back to the argument that I said was given all the time. The argument that's given all the time is, okay, maybe the schedules aren't comparable. And maybe UCF, for example, does have a lighter load to bear in the regular season, but they've shown. Boise State has shown, fill in the blank team any given year, has shown in the past, if they're given the opportunity on a neutral field, any, any one given Saturday or whatever night they play the semifinal games or big time bowl games, any given night, any given four quarter stretch, they can compete and they can win. Sure can, it's never been the argument. I want you to think about what it takes to get there because the argument has always been, what are you exposed to? How many risks does your schedule force you to take? How many violent collisions does your schedule force you to take? How many elite athletes, maybe even on teams that are gonna eventually go seven and five, but can batter your roster in the process of you beating them, are you forced to compete against? Consider Texas A&M this year. Texas A&M, by my math, probably faced more draft eligible players, players that were eventually going to be drafted, they probably faced more this year alone than some of these teams will face in a three-decade stretch. They're not even playing the same sport, is what I'm telling you. Whatever you're capable of come season's end in any four-quarter stretch is because you haven't been beaten into oblivion, and that's always been the cry. The cry is not, what are you capable of in any one game? The cry is, Texas A&M, the reason I bring them up is they weren't even on the verge of being in the conversation this year. I think they lost four or five games, whatever the case was. Texas A&M's probably favored against a minimum 11 games 
of Central Florida's schedule this year. What does it mean? Well, it means that the caliber of team isn't so much the variable here, it's the schedule. And you gotta ask yourself this too. You play teams down here that have several future NFL players on their schedule. I'm not just talking about in the SEC, and they may end up going eight and four. Texas A&M is a perfect example. Would you rather have played them? I, I asked a coach, off the record, of course, and this I think would surprise a lot of you. It didn't surprise me. I asked a coach, would you rather face, this was a, this was a playoff caliber team coach was on, would you rather face Texas A&M or would you rather face Memphis this year? And the answer without hesitation was Memphis. Doesn't sound right, does it? Memphis was a team that in any given year as of late is pushing for one of those G5 automatic bids. They're a double-digit win team. Texas A&M wasn't even in the playoff conversation. Here's what that coach knew. They'd beat either one of those teams. But in the process, they'd lose two or three guys playing against Texas A&M. Because Texas A&M has a bunch of six, four and a half, 315 pound guys that can run sideline to sideline. And the collisions, even though they're gonna go seven and five, don't make your training room any less full the following morning. You have to pay the price when you play a Power 5 schedule that you don't necessarily get asked to pay if you play a G5 schedule. That was tougher to say than I thought it was going to be. So here's the final synopsis that Bud put in this piece. I thought it was really good to conclude with this. He kind of asked, transfer portal. What's the transfer portal going to do here? Because there are a lot of folks erroneously, in my opinion, that believe now that the transfer portal is this revolving door and eventually it's thought to be a matter of when, not if, legislation will be passed that makes anyone eligible to transfer one time without having to sit out, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of people would suggest to you, okay, once we get that legislation enacted, then all of a sudden, a lot of players who don't start for Power 5 teams are going to find their way to G5 rosters, and that's what's going to close the gap. I'm telling you, it's not. This is what Bud writes. Could the coming transfer portal rule relaxations help to change the disparity in these numbers a bit? Perhaps, but it's also possible, and he's dead on the money here, that the best of the players from the G5 might look to move up to the Power 5 to finish their careers. It's going to be a net loss for you at the G5 level. I am telling you, because for every kid who can't crack the two deep, or maybe can't crack the starting lineup at Clemson or Oklahoma State or Texas, you're gonna have kids that as freshmen wouldn't have made much of an impact at Auburn, but as juniors and seniors, maybe late developers, late bloomers, athletically and physically, all of a sudden they're playing at Tulsa and they walked in the program at six foot, 175 pounds, and now all of a sudden they're a 6'3", 205 pound receiver with sub four five speed, and all of a sudden Auburn would want that kid. Those kids, will look to elevate to finish their careers. And that's the way that that's going to play out. I'm, I can almost promise you, it's not gonna be this great big leap in potential athleticism and an edge that you didn't have previously, whereas now you have it at the G5. The Power Five is always gonna win in that equation. So I thought that was a really good piece by Bud. And um, it, it's all numbers, it's all fact, it's all data, and you can interpret it any way you want to, but every argument that I get back in my face that includes needing to involve the G5 in the playoff picture and in the playoff, playoff table is all based on feeling and emotion. There is no data, there is no logic-based argument that's ever presented to me that makes any sense. It's all, well, it's not nice to keep them out. Um, it's not fair, you know, it's not right. Well, who writes the rule book? Who decides that? And by the way, 
This table you guys talk about, some of you talk about all the time, where just the elites hang out and they don't ever let anyone in their club. Well, that argument, number one, is blown to smithereens. When you talk about Utah or TCU or West Virginia, these aren't, these aren't programs in New York or LA or Miami, San Francisco. These aren't just media market overrides. You can come in here, maybe Rutgers, but the other ones, the Morgantown, West Virginia TV market and surrounding area, you're telling me that's why West Virginia got invited to the club? What about Louisville? What about Utah? Do they really need Salt Lake City's TV viewing market at the table in order to uh, prop their coffers up even more than they already are? No, there's a way to get in here, but you gotta understand something. These folks who built the table and these folks who created this entire climate with, in some cases, tradition and investment and just caring a great deal emotionally about programs that extend over 100 years back, Sometimes, believe it or not, they're very hesitant to watch a program that just popped up out of nowhere in the last five years and say, yeah, come on in. Have an equal seat at the table that we had to take 75 years to reserve ours at. That's not the way that works. It's not the way that it would work if the roles were reversed, nor should it. So you talk about fair. I, I could counter that argument. I could counter if things were truly fair they wouldn't even give you the time of day. At least they're willing to somewhat acknowledge that you belong here, but I'll tell you this as we move on. I've already spent too much time on this. I will tell you this. We read two weeks ago where an anonymous athletic director at a G5 school sort of floated this idea of a class action antitrust lawsuit if when there's a playoff expansion, the Power Five doesn't allow them to have an auto bid into that dance. And see, that's all in a, in a kind of a vacuumed chamber. And it's not acknowledging that if you want to throw that antitrust language out there, a lot of folks at this level are able to counter with just peeling that NCAA sticker off their helmets and walking away entirely. And, and there goes the wallet with them. So careful, don't rock that boat too much would, would be uh, my advice. All right, let's move on here. Kirby Smart was very vocal this week. Kirby Smart, I believe, went on the Paul Feinbaum show, and he was very vocal about people negatively recruiting against the SEC. Now, I'm not going to make you or waste your time. I'm not going to waste your time at all trying to get you to shed tears for the Southeastern Conference. Um, I am talking about this for a couple of minutes tonight because I've witnessed it, and so I have some firsthand knowledge here. Firstly, what Kirby Smart alleged on that show this week, I can confidently tell you, happens. I have spoken to kids myself who have echoed the same to me. This happens. What is this? I'll tell you in just a second. But I've heard it from players themselves. So I don't just echo Kirby Smart here. I'm telling you firsthand. I've seen this happen. Here's what Kirby Smart said on the Paul Feinbaum show this week. He's talking about programs negatively recruiting against the SEC. That's not the way NFL GMs are looking at it. That's not the way the NFL coaches are looking at it. This is Kirby Smart talking. They want to take kids that want to compete at the highest level. They want to go and play in those big-time matchups, and that's what kids want. They want to go play in the biggest games, biggest pieces. That is what they aspire to do. So for a coach in another conference to sell, hey, it might be an easier path to come here and go this way, it just speaks volumes. All right, what do we think about this? I'll tell you what I think. This works on some kids. I don't knock a kid for going anywhere he wants to for his reasons. You go to Oregon, Southern Cal, Georgia, Clemson. I don't care where you go. It's your life. It's not, even if I did care, who cares that I care? It's your decision. It's not mine. But 
I can tell you that this works on some kids. There are some kids who are drawn, maybe, they grew up in the South, maybe they want to go to an SEC program, and uh, someone gets in their ear. Recruiting is all about planting seeds. It is all about harvesting. Everyone's trying to plant their seeds, and you hope that the topsoil is not only fertile, but it is a very advantageous situation for your seed to grow specifically. And if you plant seeds in someone's mind that... You're going to get beat to death in this conference, and hey, you can still compete for championships here and maybe have a lot easier road. Sometimes that manifests itself into you getting a really good player. Now, I can tell you this. The great programs don't have to do this. The great ones get you to come play for them because of them. The second tier types and the tier B and tier C recruiters, in other words, the ones that can't sell their program then they have to pull the other guy out of their back pocket. And if, if I can't land you with our merit, then I'm just going to negatively recruit against whoever it is we're going up against and hope to win you by default. Lesser of two evils here. I've never really been a big fan of that approach. I've never really been a big fan of coaches who feel the need to have to use that approach. Not mentioning anyone specifically here for a very specific reason. Let's continue. I can tell you this. And this is why I don't think it bothers, it bothers folks like Smart and Saban and, and whoever else is, feels like they've been affected by this. It bothers them in a way. Yeah, it's never fun to lose a kid. But I can tell you this, I've had coaches uh, tell me in the long run, it benefits us sometimes that this does happen. This is not even exclusive to the SEC. Expand it out. You don't think Clemson occasionally loses out on a kid because their depth chart is used against them negatively? You don't think that Oklahoma or Ohio State or Penn State, you don't think they ever occasionally lose out on a kid because someone comes in and says, you may not start there for a little while. You know, there are different pitches that can be used negatively against you. Kirby Smart's just telling you, hey, I'm in the SEC. We've had some coaches tell kids, boy, it's a brutal path in the SEC. Why don't you come here? You can still achieve the same thing, but not risk injury as much. Just telling you there are different ways to go about it. But ultimately, ask yourself this. If you're recruiting like Ohio State right now, for example, just take Ryan Day. Um, Ohio State may land the best class of all time. Ryan Day is recruiting, and they're in it for a kid. And let's say someone comes along, maybe not necessarily in the top five conversation every year, but you know, maybe a fringe top 20 type program, and they tell a kid, you could go to Ohio State, but if you come here, you're virtually guaranteed to start. If that appeals to a kid, and that is in the seesaw battle that is a recruitment, the straw that tips the edge in your opponent's favor, ultimately sometimes it's a natural filtration process when you consider what it takes to start at Ohio State. It takes sort of a dog's mentality to start at Ohio State. To ever crack the two deep at a place like Columbus, Ohio, or Tuscaloosa, or Clemson, South Carolina, to ever start for those programs, you got to be the best of the best on planet Earth, physically and mentally, because there are a lot of guys, these programs don't recruit them if they don't have the physical tools that could eventually be molded into elite physical skill. But if you're C-plus from the neck up, if you're soft, if you're constantly looking for the shortcut, a lot of times these programs will tell you, if we lose out on you on the recruiting trail, it's a lot easier to find out then than two years into your tenure here when you're taking up a roster spot and we know you're never going to be able to contribute. So a lot of times these programs lose these big-time recruitments because of those kinds of pitches, and it ultimately ends up being a good thing for them. But what does it say about your program? if you have to use those tactics. Because I'll tell you this, I don't care, you run your program how you want to, but you have to choose a lane. 
Because sure as I'm sitting here, the same folks who Kirby Smart's talking about here, who I can tell you are out there, who pitch kids on the recruiting trail and say, don't go there, man. The schedule's brutal. You risk injury. Come here. It's not nearly as, as, as um, cannibalistic. Our schedule's not nearly the grind that theirs is, and you can still make it to the NFL. You can play for a national championship. You can either say that, or at the end of the year, you can tout your strength of schedule. You can't do both. You can't recruit against SEC teams in the offseason and say, come here, it's easier, and then go through the regular season, get to playoff selection time, and go on TV and try and talk about how tough your schedule was. You can't do both of those. And right now, we may have some people that are trying to do that, the best that I'll say. You can't also, by the way, the other thing that we get thrown at us a lot, SEC bias. And I told you last week, we absolutely have it on this show for a reason. Same reason those NFL general managers had SEC bias uh, this last week. Same reason you have SEC bias. We get the TV ratings every Monday morning. Everyone's got it because they're the best. That's it. Same reason I was biased for USC in 2002, 2003, 2004, because they were the best at the time. My bias flows where uh, the elite action is. So right now it's in the SEC. But SEC bias, nevertheless, is thrown out all the time. You can't claim SEC bias every weekend, but then go out on the recruiting trail and tell kids, the SEC's too good, man. You go down there, you got to play good players every week. you got to play good teams every week. You may never get to play for a college football playoff spot or a national championship. Come here. Road's a lot easier. We'll still develop you, blah, 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 yada, 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 but you don't have to take as much risk. Well, you are knocking down your own SEC bias argument because you just portrayed it right there in your recruiting pitch. Got to pick a lane, one way or the other. Can't have it both ways. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Boy, there was something that happened that got a lot of you been out of shape over NFL Draft Weekend, wasn't there? A lot of folks love Jake Fromm. I don't have anything against Jake Fromm. I was on the field at Notre Dame Stadium when he had to, in impromptu fashion, make his college debut. Remember, Jacob Eason got hurt in game one. So Jake Fromm takes the field in South Bend and leads Georgia to a very, very close victory on the road at Notre Dame. Think about driving around sometimes. Driving around, I live in Nashville right now. Uh, sometimes, especially these days, because there's nothing else to do, sometimes I'll just kind of drive out in the country during the afternoon. Um, I also have to learn my bearings around here, so that's another reason. I'm driving back the other day. There's a detour. I can't see any construction going on. It makes no sense to me. It took me 20 minutes out of my way. I was not happy about it at all. And I never found out what the detour was for. I just have to assume 
that it was valid. I have to assume that construction workers weren't just trying to hamper my schedule. 98% of the time, you never find out the context of the detour. Think about Georgia football this past year. And I want you specifically, speaking of Notre Dame, to think about this past year's Notre Dame game. It was the return trip. They went to Notre Dame in 2017. Notre Dame comes to Athens in 2019. You Georgia fans remember this game? Of course you do. It was big. It was a very memorable atmosphere. Do you guys remember what the talk was afterwards? You won it. You didn't cover. Very close game. A lot, quote unquote, a lot closer than the experts thought it was going to be. You got the win, but there was an argument afterwards. And the argument, and I was very, very passionate on the other side of most of you. You argued that your play calling offensively in this game was too conservative. And you argued that you made things a lot harder on yourselves than it needed to be. And I argued on the other side. I said, I think it was a brilliantly called and brilliantly handled game because Kirby Smart and his staff know exactly what they have, way better than most of you do, way better than all of you do, let's be honest. And they called the game in the manner that they thought best suited them to win the game. And that's what they did, and they won the game. And there was never a whole lot of fear about Georgia not winning that game. Well, what have we learned since then? Because just like the detour, 98% of the time I said, you never find out the context. You never find out why that detour was there. I think there's some context being provided to us right now. Did you watch the NFL draft? Did you see Jake Fromm fall to the fifth round? And I use fall in a very intentional manner. No one falls in the draft. They're just drafted where they get drafted. It doesn't matter what a magazine says. It doesn't matter how much the media was in love with you before the season. Nothing you say at SEC media days, unless you admit to having a body in your trunk, is really gonna impact what happens in the draft several months later. You are who you are as a player. The thing is, sometimes people get fooled, and they get fooled by how charming you are, how smart you are, um, how relatable you are, how clean cut an image you have. None of these are bad things. They just don't really have all that much to do with where you're gonna get drafted. What do we know now though, maybe that we didn't know, let's say that Saturday in Athens. What we know is you had an awesome home field atmosphere that night. You had a very smart quarterback there in Jake Fromm who lacks elite physical traits. You had an elite defense on the field. Your opponent in Notre Dame was not with the ability to capitalize offensively. They were not going to move up and down the field. They did not possess explosive elements offensively. You had a sizable overall roster advantage. You add all that stuff up. Remember, physical limitations of the quarterback position. How would you manage that game? All those ingredients, put them in the pot, pour it out. What gives you the best chance to win? Now we get context. Now you know now you see what the 32 NFL general managers and their army of scouting departments thought about Jake Fromm. None of them, not a single one out of 32, viewed him as worth any more than a fifth round selection. But preview magazines told you that you had a first round caliber quarterback on your roster. And so it just boggled your mind how Georgia wouldn't be ultra aggressive in their passing game. Kirby Smart, and James Coley, whom he never criticized as much as you guys did, take note, looked at their same roster, knowing it much better than you, and said, uh, the only way we're probably going to lose this game is if we take risks through the air. And they didn't. And they managed their roster in the best way that gave them the best chance to win, and they did. Now, in retrospect, knowing what Jake Fromm lacked, you see why Georgia handled things the way they did a lot of times offensively this past year. That's in the past. 
as we look forward, here's the biggest question for Georgia. Can't change any of that. Is there change coming? Because the best way, you know, you can marry two things here. Two things can be true. It could be true that Kirby Smart thought in 2019, given his ingredients, the best way to go about things was a more conservative offensive approach. Let's not lose it. Let's game manage this thing, to steal a term from yesteryear, and let's win on dominant defense, and let's be really sound in special teams, and let's win the turnover battle. Maybe that is the way that he wanted to go about it in 2019. That doesn't mean that that's the most preferable way that he'd love to go about it in the future. It's just what he had at the time. So that's the big question here. Is that just who Kirby Smart is? Nick, they used to say that about Nick Saban all the time. Is that just Nick Saban? Is that his MO? Does he just want to get a quarterback that's smart enough, not lose him a game, and then they're going to win by suffocating their opponent? They're just going to you know, wrap around their neck and slowly choke him to death, and they're going to lean on him with that superior roster, and over four quarters, the Bama factor will win out. Well, once upon a time, it was. Then all of a sudden it wasn't anymore. Who's to say Kirby Smart doesn't undergo the same philosophical evolution? Who's to say Georgia's offense doesn't undergo the same kind of evolution? I'll just tell you this. Jamie Newman got a white hot spotlight on him now, just like Munkin, new offensive coordinator there. White hot spotlight because there's a lot of talk. You miss spring. So that was your install period. You miss spring. There's a lot of talk and a lot of expectation that even with a, a dominant defense again, and even with sound special teams play and a really good roster advantage over 99 out of 100 teams they face, even with all those elements still there, there's an expectation that offensively they're going to overhaul a lot. So we'll see. That's the big question with Georgia, and it's going to be until finally toe meets leather this fall or whenever. All righty, let's continue moving. Oh, we're on a good pace right now, Colin. Okay, I, we, we set a benchmark for what time we were going to get off the air. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I just hope we hit it here. Um, we got an interview with Brian Kelly coming up Tuesday. I'm not going to play the whole thing tonight, but I talked about Notre Dame recruiting. Seems like about three weeks, four weeks ago. I talked about how there, there's a tier A. I talked about this with Brian Kelly. You'll see this Tuesday. There's a tier A in college football and there's a tier B. Tier A is Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, LSU. Um, you can put Georgia there. If you're talking roster, if you're talking championships, no, Georgia's not there, but whatever the case may be, Notre Dame's not in the first tier. Uh, they are solidly, I think, in the second tier of teams. I don't know if you realize this. They've won double-digit games back-to-back-to-back years. They are on as solid a foundation as they've been in uh, two or three decades. It just doesn't feel that way because I hadn't won a championship. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk about recruiting with Brian Kelly. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And what I did in this interview is I tried to get him to recruit me. I tried to, I tried to get the idea from him about how he goes about trying to take kids out of the South. There's a map. They put it out every year after the NFL draft. Where did the kids who were drafted grow up? And of course, you've got a sprinkling up and down the West Coast, mainly in California. East Texas is loaded. But Florida, there's so many kids, the dots overlap each other. Georgia, Alabama, uh, the Carolinas, Tidewater in Virginia, and then some in Ohio in the Midwest. No kid came out of Nebraska. Just pray for Scott Frost every night before you guys go to bed. But I wanted to know, Brian Kelly, academic you can, you can call it a hurdle or an opportunity. They got that to deal with. They got geography, maybe working against them. You got to recruit nationally. How do you do it? So this is a couple of minutes of our eventual about 20-minute long interview that's coming out Tuesday with Brian Kelly, head coach at Notre Dame. Roll it, Colin. If I'm a kid, I'm from Columbus, Georgia. So let's say I'm a kid in the deep south and the golden helmet still resonates with me. 
I've heard the stories about Notre Dame. I see you guys on NBC every week, every other week, but I really love home and I've never been away from home before. I would imagine you deal with this a lot. Everyone recruits the South and you got to convince kids, leave home. We're what's best for you, leave home. How difficult a process is that? And how do you typically go about pitching a kid and recruiting a kid and developing a relationship with a kid who you know it's going to be tough to pull from home? Yeah, it's, it's a great point, Josh. And so we have to do that in every single state. We're taking the best player generally from the state, from the local um, school, right? Whether it's Georgia or Columbus and Ohio State or on the West Coast, whether it's USC or UCLA or Oregon. So I think first and foremost, it's being very, very careful uh, in our selection process. And that is somebody that really recognizes and understands um, the value of what the degree will do for them uh, when they're done playing football. Uh, if, if we're not careful in our selection process, we'll be spinning our wheels. We'll, we'll be on the young man from, uh, from Georgia who just really is interested in playing college football, working towards a degree, whether he gets it or not. Okay, that'd be fine, but I want to play in the NFL. We need to get that guy who recognizes the value of a Notre Dame degree, is working hard to get it in three and a half years, so we can then graduate, go to the NFL, and then take that network that Notre Dame has and apply it after he's done with the NFL. So we've got to be very, very careful in finding those people. But at the same time, you don't have to sign 100 kids a year. You're right at plus or minus a couple, 25 a year. There's this, I call it a misconception. I don't believe it. I was talking to, for instance, Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech. They deal with this same sort of, I call a stigma of, man, your academics, that's really a hindrance to your recruiting. Maybe if you had to sign 100 guys a year, it is. But I got to believe, especially with the brand you guys have, I got to believe there are more than 25 kids in America qualified to play high-level football and also qualified to accept the academic challenge, which I would imagine is the way that you pitch it, is it, does any, you can't afford to look at that as any kind of hindrance, can you? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I use the analogy, you know, um, you, you can go to um, uh, a recruiting station, right? And, and you can sign up uh, to go to the army uh, or you can go over next door where it says, we want a few good men. Mm. That's the Marines. And so, so that tagline itself, right, goes, wow, they want a few good men. Maybe that's me. So for us at Notre Dame, we're really pushing that. It's like, we're looking for somebody unique. Is that you? And, and so Georgia Tech, Duke, Northwestern, Stanford, you know, uh, they're all looking for that unique profile. And they are out there. But you've got to dig and you've got to work at it and you've got to find them. And when you get that connection, you're in the hunt. And, and then that's when the work is on. I could talk recruiting with these people all day, literally all day. So that full interview with Brian Kelly comes out Tuesday morning. It is the social distance series that we've been doing. Tomorrow, by the way, if you don't want to wait until Tuesday, I got Jeff Collins from Georgia Tech. I've been really high on them. I've been pumping Georgia Tech for over a year now. And a lot of the reasons that I've been doing that will be on full display in that interview with Jeff Collins. That'll be live tomorrow morning. So a big shout out to that Georgia Tech staff. I'm telling you, they are coming.
I'm just telling you now, and there will be people once Georgia Tech is an ACC contender and then they're a serious challenger in the ACC and all of a sudden that draft day special starts to include a lot more Georgia Tech flavor and whatnot, there'll be people that say no one saw this coming. False. Almost no one will have seen it coming. We see it coming. But Brian Kelly, that's a really, really good, uh, we got him to go really in depth on some stuff. We really appreciate him making uh, the time to join us too. So uh, that's that. Now, let's wrap the show up because there's some stuff that's happened today that I didn't have time to put on the front end of the show, but we really have to touch on this. And then I'm going to tell you about the podcast at the very end. And I can tell you right now, I have uh, our trusted colleague who will remain nameless, who is aggregating the best of the questions that you guys submit in the chat. And we are doing the bonus podcast this week. And I am taking directly from this chat and Twitter the best questions. And I'm going to hit as many of them as I can in that podcast this week because I can't hit them all on the show. Let's hit the ones that we can here or we can't hit here. Impact. Uh, Jace starts us off here. What is the impact of Dylan Brooks' commitment to Tennessee? Huge. In a word, huge. Colin and I were talking about this before the show. How many of you know where Handley High School is? How many of you know or have ever heard of Roanoke, Alabama? That is where Dylan Brooks is from. He is a 6'5", 220-pound defensive end, outside linebacker, I am from this part of the country. I've got family down there. My Uncle Jimmy doesn't live too far from there. Shout out to Uncle Jimmy on Lake Widawi. There are not a lot of Tennessee flags that fly in Roanoke, Alabama. This kid was thought to initially be an Alabama lean. I can tell you internally, the Alabama coaching staff really never had all that much confidence they were going to land him. He was straight with them the whole time. I saw our Tim Watts over on BamaOnline.com talking about this earlier today. He was straight with him. Bama took one of the most loaded outside linebacker and edge rusher classes ever last year. They are loaded to the brim and beyond at that position. It was Auburn that thought they were landing this guy. And not to say he signed anything, but he has committed verbally to the University of Tennessee. It is a huge deal. It is, I cannot overstate how big it is. And here's why. You remember last year, if you were watching Late Kick at the time, we were doing it independently down in Georgia. And I said, Tennessee started off terribly. They lost to Georgia State at home. They had to finish strong. They had a softer back half of the schedule, and they had to finish strong, and they had to win their bowl game. I placed a lot more importance on that stuff with Tennessee than I normally do. And the reason is because they had to have something they could sell. You certainly can't sell the way they started last year. You certainly can't sell hot seat talk around your head coach and staff. But what you can sell is if you get things together and then you finish strong and they, I think they won seven games, they ended up winning seven games. You go out on the recruiting trail and you can tell guys, okay, look, the back half version of Tennessee, that's what we are moving forward. We're not talented enough yet though. We can't compete with Georgia without guys like you. We can't compete against Alabama without guys like you. It was a sellable end to the season, and it was sellable on the recruiting trail. That's what I'm talking about. And the surest sign that that's true is landing kids like Dylan Brooks. Again, there is no Roanoke, Alabama to Knoxville, Tennessee pipeline. There just isn't. But it didn't matter because Jeremy Pruitt, high school coaches in Alabama, they may not know Tennessee a whole heck of a lot. They know Jeremy Pruitt and he got the job done here. Now he's got to get the job done again and again and again. And as was pointed out to me, and it's very accurate on Twitter earlier today, yes, eventually the results do have to follow. Eventually you do have to beat Florida, Alabama, Georgia, because eventually you can only sell a vision for so long. It has to become reality. This is a really, really promising first step though. Uh, Cheryl is up next. Uh, Cheryl asked me, how was the Matthew McConaughey interview? We had about, 
30 minutes uh, with Matthew McConaughey. I interviewed him the other day in my kitchen, no less. It was uh, part of our social distance series. You can go on the 24-7 YouTube channel, which you are on right now if you're watching. And uh, if you're listening, you can very easily find it. And you can find that interview. Awesome, Cheryl. Incredible. A lot of folks are not who they are on camera, on screen. You meet a healthy mixture of all kinds in this business. Matthew McConaughey is a guy who is the characters he plays in his movies. So authentic, so incredible. And the best part was uh, we sat there and chatted for about 15 minutes before we ever hit record. I wish I would have, in retrospect, hit record on some of that conversation. I'll probably uh, tell a more lengthy version of that story uh, one day when we have more time. But really, really awesome. Really cool. The third question by Joseph. How far will LSU drop off, losing all this talent to the draft, including Joe Brady and Dave Aranda as coaches? LSU just sent 14 guys to the NFL draft. Um, There are two schools of thought. One is you guys better enjoy 2019 because it was a one-hit wonder, and it's not that you're going to be terrible. It's not going to that you're struggling to make a bowl all of a sudden, but, you know, it'll be back to nine-win-a-year LSU. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is the culture's been rewritten there, and it's going to, of course, be tough to ever duplicate or come close to duplicating what they just did for them or anybody. You don't have to duplicate what LSU just did to win a championship. You got to duplicate that to maybe be in conversation for the best of all time, period, in the sport. LSU, here's what I think you're looking for. You're looking for what Clemson did defensively this last year. If you're finding out whether you got a cultural overhaul there, if they are there to stay, look and see if they're able to pull off some of what Clemson did last year. Do you remember this time Last year, we were talking about all these dudes that Clemson had had on campus forever. All those defensive linemen felt like a million of them, and they were all going to the NFL draft. Think about how many of them they were losing. Three in like the first whatever picks in the first round of the NFL draft. There's no way that they can be dominant defensively this year. And then they were dominant defensively again, not just against the bakery of cupcakes that is the ACC. They got in the playoff and against Ohio State, After giving up an early lead, that defense was able to stiffen its neck a little bit, and they ended up coming from behind and winning. And the point is, you're watching it. I was watching that, and even with LSU eventually beating them in the national championship game, I thought the job Brent Venables did last year with their defense, all things considered, was one of the most incredible things I'd ever seen. And the reason is because the expectations weren't there, because they lost the pieces the year before. Well, LSU's losing a lot of pieces here. That coaching staff is to the level that maybe we think it is, they're able to replace the departures on the coaching staff, and they're able to overcome cumulatively the losses on the roster. And it may not be a 12-win season this year, but if LSU wins 10 games this year, and they're challenging, if they're a 10-win caliber team, and they're challenging Alabama, and they're challenging whoever would be favored over them, that's a sign that they're here to stay. Because you find me anyone else. Take the 14 best players off anyone else's roster and then throw them right back in the meat grinder the next year. You tell me how they do. Their over-under win total is nine, I think, this upcoming year. I'd take the over. Thinking all the while, what's more likely? Ten wins or eight wins? Because if I land on nine, you just give me my money back. I'd take the over because I think it's far more likely that LSU exceeds expectations than it is that they all, all of a sudden fall not back to the pack but behind the pack a couple of rungs and go to eight wins. I don't think that's what's happening. I think a lot of what they implemented last year is here to stay, even if some of the players that executed what they implemented have moved on. 
All right, podcast matters here. I told you, um, give me as many questions as you've got. I'm, we're going to take the best of them in the chat, and I'm going to take the best of them that you tweet at me, at Late Kick Josh. By the way, a lot of you have followed me on Twitter, and I really, really appreciate that. That's how I can interact with you throughout the week, at Late Kick Josh, if you haven't already. But that's another way to submit questions. In the DMs, you can just tweet them at me directly. And what I'm talking about here is... The way the Late Kick podcast works right now, if you haven't already, subscribe to that and leave us a five-star review and a comment, if you will. Uh, the way it works right now is we just take the audio from the YouTube show that we do and we upload it in podcast form. A lot of you prefer it that way. You love to listen when you're running at the park or when you're driving to and from work. I see the traffic. I know exactly how you guys ingest our content. However you do it, I thank you. But a lot of you have said, and I've thought along with you, why don't we do more on the podcast channel? So we're going to. So I'm going to start producing one podcast that is just exclusive to the podcast feed. Question number one, is this an effort to make you subscribe to the podcast? Yes, it is. Question number two, does this have to do with the fact that Right now in quarantine, we got a little bit more free time, and so I'm sitting there with all that equipment CBS sent me from New York in my apartment. Why not use it? Yes, that's also accurate. So it's interactivity. You guys send me what you want answered, and I'm going to rapid fire as many questions as I can get to in a reasonable amount of time. Emails, uh, Colin, you asked about emails. Yes, feel free to email those questions to Colin. Uh, Director Colin has my email address right there at the bottom of the screen. For those of you listening, it is joshpate706 at gmail.com. We have to represent the 706. So uh, we got to get out of here because we have got uh, the Bulls documentary coming on in about 10 minutes. So wherever you have been, we appreciate you watching. Give us a like on the way out. We appreciate you being here for Colin, for Aaron, for our podcast guys, and for everyone else. I'm Josh Pate. We'll back the same time Thursday night. Have a great week. season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. Used to be. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.